You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guest today is Cece Lira, a literary agent at PS Literary Agency who represents adult fiction and nonfiction. She's especially looking for clients with whom she can build fruitful, lasting relationships. Cece believes that stories are empathy-generating machines, capable of healing, connecting, and enacting true change. As a mixed-race Latinx immigrant, Cece understands the power of seeing oneself reflected in books. Hence, her passion for championing under or misrepresented voices or narratives. She is also the co-host of the popular podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, which has over 2 million downloads. On the show, we talked about query letters, conversations writers should have with prospective agents, interpreting rejection letters, how much of a submission an agent will actually read, Googling writers, mistakes writers make, and much more. And now for my talk with Cece Lira. Cece, it's so good to talk with you. I have um, heard you on the shit no one tells you about writing for quite a while. And so it's just a pleasure, pleasure to talk with you today. Let's let's begin with you talking about how you found your way to agenting. Yeah. Um, so thank you for having me. First of all, it's it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you're a fan of the podcast. So my start into agenting, it's kind of a boring story. I My background is in law. Um, I joke that I'm a recovering lawyer because it's not something you can ever fully recover from. I was not fulfilled in that profession. I, you know, I wasn't miserable, but I also didn't find happiness in it. And I'm a very passionate person. It's really hard for me to to not work with my passion. And, you know, I took some time to figure out what I wanted to do with my life because it became very clear that I needed a change. And during that time, all I did was read, read all day and, and write a little bit too, because um, I've always been very creative. And, you know, I, I felt I felt like that that passion I have always had for stories um, had been telling me something. All my life, I've been a an avid reader, a voracious reader, and I, you know, just thought to myself, like, I I need to pursue a career in this. And of course, this is something that I decided with my partner. You know, I, I'm married to a very supportive man who who really wanted me to pursue my dreams, and so it's a conversation we had together as a family. Um, I went back to school. Um, I was in my mid-30s at the time, and everyone was straight out of college, straight out of university, and went back to school for publishing. And remember, I have this distinct memory um, at the program. I was in the classroom, and I looked around, and I was like, oh, my God, I found my people, like book people. Book people are awesome. I love book people. And I just felt really happy in a way that I, I had never felt before in my professional life. Um, even even when I was having great moments at work, because there were so many great moments in, in my previous profession. Um, but it's just the level of fulfillment and 
cerebral stimulation and the sense of of working with a, towards a purpose, I think, and really just finding your calling. And so when I was enrolled in that program, you know, becoming an agent was a no-brainer because I felt like all the creative advantages that I had, I've always been a very creative person. I've always enjoyed, like I said, reading, but also like story crafting, brainstorming, coming up with plot twists. I enjoy dissecting books as I read them. And I have a treasure trove of like ideas and techniques that I've mapped out after reading so many books. And also the business um, side of aging tang. So I'm very comfortable negotiating. I'm very comfortable reviewing contracts. I'm very comfortable building relationships with, with editors. And so I felt like it was really the, the perfect job for me. Like if someone were to, were to write like a job that Cece would love, um, it's agenting. I would change lots of things about the industry, yeah. but agenting is really the best job in the entire universe. I still pinch myself every day um, that I that this is my life, that this is my job, and it's and I'm so fortunate to be here. Since you have a law background, had you considered becoming a literary attorney? Um, no, not at all. I did not want to stay in that profession at all. I wanted to do something way more creative. Literary attorneys, I mean, I've never truly looked into it, but from my understanding, and I feel like I'm right, it's not creative driven. And, you know, the law is a very regulated profession, which is a great thing for law, but that rigidity doesn't allow for the creative freedom that you have when it comes to working with, with a client in agenting. Interesting. So there's a lot on you um, on your website and on manuscript wish list of what you represent, but maybe you could touch on that here for our listeners, what you look for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I represent adult fiction and adult nonfiction. So what I don't do is kid lit. That means no YA, no middle grade, um, no picture books. I have fantastic colleagues who, who do those things, um, just not me. On the fiction side, I like, oh gosh, I represent all genres except for very heavy sci-fi. So essentially, if your story is like Game of Thrones, I think that's awesome. And I'll be a reader and I'll be a viewer of your adaptation, but I'm not the agent for that. Um, but everything else, like I'm open to it as long as it's really well written. I gravitate towards literary fiction and upmarket fiction. I do enjoy commercial fiction too, as long as the writing is very elevated um, I like stories that are dark and humorous in the vein of my sister, the serial killer, and the bandit queens. I enjoy stories that deal with class dynamics, sociocultural criticisms, um, messy families, dysfunctional families, dysfunctional relationships in any any <laughs> sort I like. Um, female rage. If your protagonist is a woman and she is raging, then I might be the agent for you. Um, I really like stories that have protagonists navigating opposing worlds and, you know, caught between two things, like really just feeling the pressure. I love literary fiction that's introspective, kind of like Nisha Dolan, Ruman Alam, Emma Klein. Mm -hmm. um, also love the more propulsive stuff like Big Little Lies and... Um, I loved Dial A for Antis, which I think is a very commercial book. But again, so so propulsive, so much fun. And then on the nonfiction side, I like what I call paradigm shifting nonfiction. And so expert driven, very well researched, very meaty. Um, you have to really be an expert. What I what I when I when I talk about nonfiction, what I say is no one becomes an expert because they write a book. Mm -hmm. um, they write a book because they're an expert. And so 
it could be anything. I, my favorite topic is psychology. So I love that, but it could be really any topic except for music and sports, just because I'm not well-versed in these topics, unless it's something like a feminist expose of sports, in which case I would absolutely um, take a look at that. So, so yeah, I, I love, I love both. And then there's also memoirs, which I find to exist at the intersection of fiction and nonfiction. Because I like memoirs that read like a novel. So think Educated by Tara Westover. Think Wild Game by Adrian Berdour. Aftershocks by Nadia Awuso. Um, and also, I also like what we call Memoir Plus, which is memoir that also has some type of sociocultural um, element to it. It could be an expose. It could be an in-depth analysis. Um, I have a wonderful client whose book only comes out next year. Um, but his name is Dr. Jonathan Lassiter. And he wrote... You know, it's part memoir, part expose. Like, it's just, it's such an amazing memoir, but it's also a lot more than a memoir. So, so yeah, I, I like so many things. I'm a very eclectic reader. And one thing I always say, which I imagine is quite frustrating for writers, but it's true, is that I sometimes don't know what I want until I see it. I I review queries quite carefully. And so if, if you feel like something might be for me, send it over and... I want to fall in love with stories. I am actively building my client list and I'm hungry for new clients. So if it's well-written, um, if it's propulsive and interesting and engaging, and if I can't put it down, then I want it. Well, what is the percentage of fiction to nonfiction on your list? It's about 50-50. Um, I've never actually counted, but that's the impression I have. Yeah, maybe 60-40, but 50-50. Okay. So... And I'm also curious if what you um, like now, what you want to represent now, what you do represent now, if that's changed over time, you know, have you always been on the lookout, say, for novels um, about dysfunctional families or women raging or, or whatever, you know, everything you just said, does that change? And then you go, you know what, I have enough of that. Now I need a little bit more of this. Um, I don't think what I've wanted has changed. I think I've figured out new ways to convey the things I've always wanted. Um, I approach aging ting in a very organic way. I want to represent books that I want to read. I sometimes get submissions that I know will sell and I know will be a fantastic book, but it's not a book I'm going to enjoy. And that's a pass for me. Um, so, you know, no, in the sense that I've always wanted good books, but yes, in the sense that I've become, I've learned how to frame things differently. Um, in a way that perhaps makes more sense to querying writers and will allow them to find me because that's what I want. I want them to find me. So you, so the marketplace, that was going to be one of my questions. You know, how influenced by the marketplace are you? And it sounds like if you don't love it, it doesn't matter how popular it might be or how many readers it might find, you just can't get behind it. Is that accurate? Yeah, especially for fiction because mm -hmm. you have to read something – I mean, gosh, I don't even know how many times I read my clients' manuscripts, um, five, six times at least. Mm. I don't want to read something that many times if I'm not going to be into it. Um, as well, I don't think the author deserves an agent who doesn't love their work. Um, I, I am influenced by the marketplace in the following sense. If people are gravitating towards a specific book, I, I try to read that book to figure out what it is about that book that's resonating with people um, and how that could work for my list. And sometimes I discover things I didn't know I loved and mm. that is very valuable. But then I genuinely want that after reading it and trying it. So yes and no, it's kind of a complicated answer. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, um, and because um, 
so much can be learned about you. Um, someone Googles you, finds out everything about you that they can find out. And the same um, with you and clients. Someone someone approaches you, you read the query, it's interesting. I would imagine that you look them up. And I wonder at what point you do that. You know, I mean, is it when you're really interested in what this author or possible potential author, potential client is is trying to um, interest you in? I mean, how does that go? Yeah, this is really different for fiction and nonfiction. So for nonfiction, because it's so expert driven, I look people up very early in, in the process. Sometimes I look someone up, discover I love their work, analyze their work and reach out to them to say, hey, have you ever considered writing a book? And so it's completely driven by their personality and their, you know, who they are. But for fiction, um, I like to fall in love with the writing first. I appreciate query letters that have a website or a social media handle at the end of the signature, but I don't look that up unless I'm about to ask for a call. Mm. Um, and sometimes I don't even look at that till after the call because it's very organic for me. I want to read your story. I want to fall in love with your story. I want to go, oh my gosh, I love this book. I have to tell all my friends and family about this book because they're going to love it too. Um, and then, yeah, I want to know who you are. I actually had a really funny experience quite recently. The last client I signed, the most recent client I signed, um, ink on the contract is not even final yet. So like, I, may, I hope I'm not jinxing this, but I read their novel assuming they were, like, I didn't know what gender they were because their name was genderless, like like gender neutral, I should say. Um, and I assumed, maybe because that's me, that they were a woman in their 40s. I don't know. I turned 40 in June. I feel like I can say 40 now. I don't know. Like, I assumed that. I don't know why. I didn't realize any of these assumptions, by the way. It was not conscious until I got on Zoom. And they are a much younger person. Like much younger. They're in their early 20s. Um, and that's fine. I have another client who's in her early 20s. I have clients who are way older. Like it, it doesn't matter to me at all. But I feel like as human beings, we work based off on assumptions that we're not necessarily conscious of. And my first question to them was, how do you write so well? You're so young, which is a silly question. I know young people can write well. It just, you know, it doesn't matter. But but yeah, I was surprised. So so I do look people up. I want to make sure that they I don't know. They're not like horrible human beings. Like if I look someone up and they're a member of the Nazi party, I'm going to stay away from them, obviously. But it's really stuff like that that we look for. You know, like I'm not, you're not looking to pass a test other than like basic human decency. Um, it doesn't matter to me what anyone's background is. Again, it's different fiction and nonfiction. And I suppose even within fiction, there are stories that make more sense for certain people to tell. But, but I want to fall in love with the writing first. So, you know, as you're looking someone up, are you looking at followers and how, how prominent they are on the various social media platforms? Is that important and, or is it important again, whether it's fiction or nonfiction? For nonfiction, it is important. It's not make or break though, because for nonfiction, what matters is that you're an expert. Being an expert doesn't necessarily mean having followers, especially nowadays with social media platforms blowing up. Like what do followers even mean? Right. It could be so much more important to have a newsletter or credentials or like articles and newspapers. I want you to be an expert is what I'm saying for nonfiction. For fiction, I do not care at all. Like it is completely irrelevant to me. If you have a great following, I'm not saying that won't be useful, 
Um, but I have signed a few clients who aren't even on social media. Like they will have to be once their book comes out. It's a conversation the publisher has had with them, but they're building their platform now organically after the book sold. Um, one one example, her name is Anameli Salgado. Her book comes out this year in July. It's called My Mother Cursed My Name. It's an amazing novel. Um, Anameli and, you know, her publisher and I had a conversation. Hey, Anameli, you have to get on social media. She was like, yes, I'm going to do it. So she's doing it now. She's building it from scratch. I have no idea how many followers she has, but I'm sure it's not a lot because her book hasn't even, hasn't even come out yet. Um, and that's okay because I, I care about a good story first and foremost, and we'll just take it from there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, and plus you can buy followers, right? You can go on Instagram and pay 50 bucks and get 20 million followers. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I just wonder these days how exactly, like how important is it? And it just sounds like it's not as important as maybe it used to be when we thought it's really important to have all these followers because they're going to buy books, but it doesn't really translate into book sales, does it? Yeah. I mean, I have no idea what buying followers even looks like, but for book sales, for fiction, I mean, word of mouth matters. Right. Um, word of mouth is super important, but, but I, I, I just feel like, you know, you could have millions of followers. There was an actually a really good article in the New York times about this a long while ago. The name of the article was actually called millions of followers that was discussing how these, you know, people with huge followings, millions of followers had awful book sales because it doesn't, there's no way to know for sure. Um, it will never hurt you to have a following. No one's going to go, oh, you have lots of followers. I I don't want your book because of that. But truly, the two things you can control as, as a writer, one, it's how good your story is. That's something you can control. And two, it's how well you treat people because it's a relationship-based business. And so being kind, being courteous, being professional matters. And so these are the two things I think writers can control. Everything else, it's pretty much out of your control. Before we bring Cece back on, a few words about Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. A few dollars a month helps Marie and me to continue bringing the show to you. We have perks for patrons, the schedule of guests, the invitation we give um, to, for you to ask questions for upcoming guest authors and agents, prompts and writing tips. You can also help the show by buying your books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing, where you'll find books by authors who've been on the show as well as other books we like. And now for more with Cece Lira. Well, you mentioned age um, a little earlier. And so, you know, this is something that seems to also have been changing where we're seeing more older debut novelists, older debut authors. And I, I guess I wonder, you know, how has this influenced editors' views on taking on projects by older people, older writers? Has that changed because of the success of, you know, where the crawdads sing and lessons of chemistry. I mean, books like that. I can't really speak to whether it's changed because I haven't been aging for that long. Um, it's only been what, four years now. I, I forget when I started, but um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I've heard from sources I trust that people used to care so much more about the 20 under 20, 30 under 30, that there was this allure to a young novelist um, and that that is changing. And if that is true, that makes me very happy because 
ageism is a very real thing. I'm not trying to deny it, but it's also an awful thing. And furthermore, in when it comes to something like writing, people get better with time. Um, you know, if you ask any author, were you better when you were 20 or when you were 30 and when we were 40 or when you were 50, my guess is everyone's going to say they get better with time, unless they stop writing, of course, because it is something you have to practice. But you get better with age. And so, you know, it's, it's again, ageism is real. I'm not trying to deny it. But I love that we we are working at a profession when I don't think there is such a thing as an expiration date or, you know, being old, being something bad, just the opposite. Um, when I think of the novelists I love, their books just keep getting better. So, so that's awesome. Yeah. We're not dancers, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, there's a time when you probably aren't going to be able to dance so well. I mean, that's the reality with the body, right? But the mind is a different thing. So this is a crazy question. It's something I've been thinking about in terms of age and gender of agents. Okay. Um, so do you think it's important, like, well, to consider the gender and age of the agent you're querying before what you submit while, you know, before you send out, for instance, I was thinking of the lovely bones that came out years ago. I don't know who the agent was for that book, but I would imagine that a young female agent with a little girl would have a hard time with that book. I would just imagine that might be the case because I have a little girl. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to have to read this book over and over again. Um, Maybe you'd be better with, uh, you know, a male agent over 40. I don't know. I mean, do you think projects, you know, you have to kind of line them up with with agents in terms of their gender and age? My gut reaction is no. I don't think you have to do that. Um, I think it's important to look at people's wish lists. I imagine that the agents that would be open to a story like The Lovely Bones or like The Push um, by Ashley Audrain, that is also very hard to read if if you are a young parent. Um, perhaps these the, the agents that would be ideal for these books are people who are looking for these types of books. Like I am very clear that like, give me dark, give me twisty, give me taboo. The only thing I struggle to read is animal suffering. And even then I can read it as long as I know it's coming. Um, I just have to prepare myself. So I don't think it matters at all um, because I don't think that we can... Like, again, as humans, we assume, we assume that, you know, perhaps a young mother would struggle, but that's not necessarily true. So I think it's important to do research um, into what sorts of books the agent is looking for. And mm -hmm. if they're looking for darker books, then by all means, and your book's dark. Um, but if they're looking for light and frothy, then then maybe, you know, steer clear. Um, some agents are looking for both. I'm I'm someone who I love light and and, you know, silly. And I also love dark and twisty. I just... Because again, I care so much about the writing, so much about the story crafting. So yeah, it's really more about research. I don't think that that should factor in at all. Because I think that's, you know, the more we override those unconscious biases, um, first of all, the better we will be as a society. And also, the better chances of us finding a good match. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, let's talk about query letters, because that's where it all begins, right? It all begins with uh, with the writer and the agent. So on your website, I think it's on your website, you have very clear instructions about how to, how to structure a query letter. Top paragraph is the title, word count, comps. Let's talk about comps. 
how old can they be? And is it fine to mix books with movies, books with TV shows, uh, film and TV without books in there? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I will share my personal preference. This is a CC thing. And then I'll talk a little bit about how also a lot of agents feel. So for me, at the querying stage, what truly matters is you finding a good way to tell me editorially where your book sits. The purpose of a comp after you have an agent and once you're submitting to editors is to allow the editors to build a profit and loss statement so they can ask for money and pay you money. We're not there yet, right? Like we're at the querying stage right now. So for me, I care more about can you explain to me where this book sits editorially? Is it for fans of Lisa Jewell? That tells me something right away. Is it like the other black girl? That tells me something right away. Um, and if a book is 10 years old, 20 years old, if a book didn't necessarily do well, um, these things, to me, they don't matter as much. I would be fine with a movie and a TV show as comps. No, not even books. That's mm -hmm. fine. I would be fine with all of it. What I care is about understanding where your story is sitting. In fact, I have a client who queried me with a story. Um, she did not use books as comps. And then when she was talking about the author she loved in the author paragraph, she mentioned authors who have not published in a while um, or, or perhaps books by authors that are old. I don't remember. Um, it didn't matter to me because I understood exactly what her story was about. And when I read her pages, I loved the writing. So, however, when I submitted her book, then I had to do the work of coming up with the great comps. And I talked to her about that to make sure that she was on the same page and she was happy with the comps I chose. So, again, for me, it doesn't matter. Um, however, for many agents, it does matter. Comps should be no more than five years old. They should have done well, but not too well, which to me is like saying, Oh yeah, I want, you know, a big house, but not too big. What does that even mean? It's so confusing. Like I, I know it's not confusing because I have access to data, but for poor querying authors, I empathize so much because that would frustrate me if I were in their position. But again, that's the directive. And so for anyone who's struggling with that, so on my podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, we actually have a number you can call and you record a message saying, I'm looking for comps. This is what my book is about. Help me. And booksellers um, help you. And so it's a free service. It's not, you don't have to pay anything for that. Um, we obviously pay the booksellers, but it's free for the listeners. So if you are struggling, you are happy to, you know, you're welcome to call and and hopefully we can help. I also feel like talking to librarians is an excellent way to find comps. Like librarians are rock stars. We should absolutely use them as resources because they're fantastic and so smart. Um, and more than anything, I think reading widely and you know, being an avid reader is the most important thing when it comes to finding comps. But I do want to say, you know, as a general disclaimer, I feel so much for like poor authors because finding comps is so hard. Like it is my job to find comps and I find it hard and I spend hours, perhaps even days nailing those perfect comps. I should have to do it. I'm a salesperson. I have access to data. But to put that on, on the author, like, yeah, it's important and it's a competitive industry, so you have to do it. But I care more about editorially where your comps stand. And I care about that more because if you tell me your book is like lessons in chemistry and I'm reading a thriller 
filled with slashing and murder. I'm like, are you sure your book is like lessons in chemistry? Like maybe, maybe we're not on the same page, you know, like that's why I care. And probably you don't want to be told there's nothing like this anywhere, right? You probably yeah. don't want to hear that either. Um, I, if someone feels that way, I emotionally understand that, mm -hmm. but I would never say it. Just right. don't say it. Like right. as an advice to listeners, don't say it because it could, part of the problem with, with why querying is so hard is because we get a lot of queries that are very, very delusional and disrespectful. Mm. Now, your listeners are not writing these queries. I know this because anyone who is taking the time to listen to a podcast and listen to others is not that person. Mm -hmm. But we get a lot of those queries. And so we're already a little, you know, maybe maybe hurt. Maybe, maybe hurt isn't the word, but we're already a little hesitant when we read things like that. So if you feel that way, that's okay. No one has to know, though. Don't say that, you know, don't say your book isn't like anything. Categories, because in that top paragraph, you also want categories, you know, is it, is it, um, uh, I don't know, upmarket fiction, is it contemporary fiction, is it romance, is it literary? Um, I know a couple of agents who like the category of book club fiction. They're like, I know what that is. You don't have to tell me it's anything else. It sounds like you might too. Absolutely. I love book club fiction. It's a hundred percent a category. It's, it's one we love because it's what, what it means is essentially that your book is going to awaken interesting conversations that readers can have. And that because of that, more book clubs will want to pick it up. What I will say though, is that a lot of people, well-intentioned, lovely people don't know what their genre is. And when they hear book club fiction and they think, oh, book clubs are going to pick it up. Yeah, yeah, that's my book. And so they call their book book club fiction, but it's not. You mm -hmm. want it to be. I want it to be too, but it's not. So it's best to know what your category or sorry, what, what your genre is, right? Like, so if you are writing a thriller, that is not necessarily book club fiction. Very few thrillers are. So it's fine if, if you're writing a thriller. I love thrillers. Um, if you're writing a coming of age, like a quiet coming of age novel, I love quiet coming of age novels. That is great. Not book club fiction. So the, the the challenge with book club fiction is everyone wants it. Agents know exactly what it means. Not everyone is able to be realistic when it comes to labeling their projects as book club fiction. I think of it as uh, controversial, that it's fiction that's controversial. Mm -hmm that it's something that people will argue over, have very strong opinions over. Um, I don't know. Interesting. I never thought about it that way. I think that it, you know, it, it makes sense in, in the following way. If you, if it's controversial, you'll, you'll get conversation started, but sometimes the book isn't controversial and you still have conversations. So, and sometimes the book is controversial, but it's so quiet of a novel that it's not propulsive enough for book club fiction. So I think, it's a common element for sure, but I don't think it's necessarily like not all controversial novels are book club fiction novels and not all book club fiction novels are controversial, I think. Okay. Well, are you seeing more mashups of genres? I mean, like what if you've written, I don't know, a literary novel that is also, um, um, you know, has element mystery elements. I mean, what, what would you call that? Do you know what I mean? Or maybe it's a little noir. It's a little romance. It's a little, you know, how do you describe mashups? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we have we are seeing more more mashups. I love them. Great example is Dial A for Antes. It's a rom com and and a thriller. 
How do you pull off both? I would have thought it was not possible until I read Jesse's novel. So go Jesse. Um, yeah. So I think again, at the querying stage, your job is not to get the marketing right. If you can, that's amazing. It'll give you an advantage. But you can say that. You can say, my book is part this, part that. Um, it wouldn't matter to me. Maybe there's an agent out there who would not be okay with it. But in my opinion, that's not a very intelligent stance because so many novels that are mashups are doing well. And maybe if you don't want it, that's fine. That's taste-based. But if you don't think those novels are doing well, that's something else. So I think you can just say that. You can say it's literary fiction with mystery elements or it's literary fiction. Or it's a coming of age with th thriller elements. You can use that word elements to describe. Um, I have been in situations where I read something and I remember very specifically one project that was pitched as literary thriller, which is not quite a mashup, but it also is because you don't think of literary fiction as thrillers, right? That book was beautiful. It was incredibly well-written. The characters were unforgettable. The setting was fantastic. The story was propulsive. It was not a thriller. So I talked to the author. I was like, you are not writing a thriller. Do you want it to be a thriller? She said, yes. And I was like, okay, then you have to infuse thriller elements. Um, let's do that. Like, let's infuse thriller elements because she could write, like, she can write so well. Um, but she, but she wasn't, it wasn't quite a thriller yet, but it became one. It became a fantastic thriller, a literary thriller. Interesting. Well, well, let's move down in the query letter to now we're in the middle paragraph, which is basically the writer talking about the book. Um, should a writer think of that middle paragraph as flap copy? Yes, that is a great way to think about it. If you can write it in a pitchy, salesy way, mm -hmm. um, kind of like the back of a book or the jacket flap, um, then yes. I have a lot of respect and a lot of empathy for writers because it's so hard to do that. It is a very different skill from writing a novel. You can be the best storyteller in the world and you might not be able to write pitch copy. And you might be able to write pitch copy and not be able to write a novel, right? So, so yes, that is a great way to think about it. A few things to consider when writing your plot paragraph is it's very important to introduce us to a character with a very clear goal. It's very important to establish what is in the way of that goal, what or who, preferably both. Mm -hmm. It is very clear to, to establish, it's very important to establish what happens if they don't get it. That's the stakes. And so the major dramatic question should be very clear. And I should be curious by that question. If you are writing quiet, introspective literary fiction, it's hard to make that question interesting. Um, a really great example from a TV show is the TV show Mad Men. Oh, the sure. major dramatic question in that, that TV show is, who is Don Draper? Is that interesting? No, because I don't know who Don Draper is if all I'm doing is reading a query letter. But because you've said it's quiet literary fiction, that's fine. Because as an agent, I'll be like, that's okay. She knows she knows what the major dramatic question is. She's clear on that. I am now going to go read the pages to figure out if I'm curious based on the writing. So, okay. So then we're down into the biograph. And what if a writer is a new writer, has no publications? Um, what about MFAs? Are they meaningful to you? Will you pay more attention to a, a query from a, a writer who has an MFA? I mean, talk about that biograph. Yeah. Um, what it needs to do. What it needs to do. I think the most important part of the author bio paragraph is establishing what, if any, link there is between you and your story. That could be anything. 
for example, if your story is about a nurse in a hospital and you worked as a nurse in a hospital for 20 years, that is a very important thing to include in the author bio paragraph. Is it essential? No, still going to read your pages, but it is a plus. There is nothing that matters more to me than seeing that link because it usually means authenticity and it usually means that the story is coming from a place of, of realism that really matters to me. Um, and I'm using the nurse example, but it could be anything, right? Like your story said in Italy, you spent time in Italy. It could be anything. That's the most important thing. Um, uh, when it comes to like writing credentials, publications, all that, I have a lot of respect for education. I have a lot of respect for people who spend time and money and energy pursuing education. And so I will always applaud those who do it. However, if I'm being very honest, I've had queries that said I have an MFA from insert very impressive university here. I don't want to list one in case it sounds bad, but <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm so happy for you, but it doesn't move the needle one way or another. What's going to move the needle is going to be your pages. Um, in fact, if anyone is concerned at all about like, oh, I'm not, I don't have anything to show for it. I'll be very honest to me, you saying I took a course, like a short course, online course, carries the same weight as an MFA, truly, because it shows me that you're investing time in your writing. Mm -hmm. But even if you say nothing, if you say, I live in Arizona with my partner and two dogs, fine, that is okay. <laughs> like that is enough for me at this stage. I will want to know more about you if and when we connect, because I want to get to know you. But you know, it's, it's asking a lot of writers to be to like be vulnerable and share things about their lives. People don't want to, if they want to keep things vague, that's okay. You know, where you are in the world, your dogs, it's, it's, it's truly enough. Do you want to hear whether a writer has worked with a developmental editor in that query? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't mind hearing it, but it doesn't matter to me at all. I, I'll be very honest. I get so many queries that say this has been professionally edited and I don't see a correlation. Um, I don't see a link, I should say, between something being well-written and the developmental editor note. I'm not saying that, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I'm not saying that there isn't a link between developmentally editing your novel through various ways and good writing. There absolutely is, but like, I don't, I don't really see a link between the mention or not. So it doesn't matter to me. Okay. So you get a query and I think you ask for 10 pages. Is that, is that right? I think you asked for 10. Yeah, um, that's right. How far will you read? How far will you read? I mean, say you get through the query and you're like, oh, this sounds interesting. And then you start looking at the pages. Will you stop even at the first paragraph? Or will you read the first page and go, nah. or will you read the whole 10 pages and see if anything happens there? My answer is going to depress people. I'm <laughs> going to be honest, though. I stop whenever my instincts tell me to stop. And sometimes that is the first paragraph. I can tell if someone has a command of language, if someone has a strong voice, if someone has polished their work very early on, like very early on. The mistakes that people who query too early make are common and usually the same. And so you can spot these mistakes very early on, which is not to say that like I once signed a person who had a typo in her first paragraph. Like, should you have typos? No, aim to not have typos. But it's also fine because everything else was fantastic. 
Like the writing was great. The voice was amazing. And there was a typo. So, so what? My emails have typos. Like it's normal. People, people make mistakes. Um, but yeah, I can tell very early on. I stop whenever my instincts tell me to stop. And I would say that for most of my queries, I don't even read the full page because you can tell like you, and that's how I choose books. I love too, by the way, when I'm browsing books, whether on my iPad or at a bookstore, I open the book up, I start reading it. I know right away if that voice is going to suck me in. I know sometimes it does. And for whatever reason, it loses me after a while that happens. But if a voice doesn't suck me in right away, I am not going to stay on to, to find out whether I'm going to like it later. I don't mean plot, by the way, plot can happen later. I'm talking about voice. I'm talking about that command of language and storytelling. So you mentioned the mistake, um, you know, that writers might make, but what is there a mistake you see over and over again in, in query letters or submissions that come in that, um, I mean, maybe it's simply people are querying you about categories you just don't represent, but, you know, is there any, anything like that or anything, you know, you said that, um, I don't know, earlier you said you get queries that, I forget what you said, but that you said they're not listening to the podcast. They're not listening to writers' podcasts, but I don't know, are there other things or is it just all over all over the place? Yeah, there are a few common mistakes. Um, there's definitely people who query me with things I don't represent, but then I'll be honest, in that case, I don't even read the pages. Like if you query me with a middle grade novel, I will be very honest, I will not read the pages because why would I? I don't rep the genre. And my colleagues who do, they can see my queries because we share an inbox. And so if they love it, they can they can reach out to the author. Um, yeah. And then I think, I think in terms of the pages, the most common mistakes I see are people who have not worked on the writing on a line level. They came up with a really good story idea. And they just have not taken the time to learn how to write a story. Learning how, knowing how to write, being literate, is different from knowing how to write a story. A good way to think about it is this. Can you sing? Like, we can all sing, right? Like, I sing in the shower all the time. Um, I would not go on American Idol because I'm not that good of a singer. You know, I would not, I would not even audition. And it's not because I would be embarrassed. That's true as well. But even if I could go in disguise, I would still not go because I'm not good enough. I'm just not. And so... Could I be? Maybe. Maybe if I worked really hard and applied myself, maybe I could become really good. I don't know. I've never tried. But storytelling is a skill. It is not the same as writing. And learning how to become a stronger storyteller requires time, energy, effort, and dedication. And I think it's awesome if someone goes, I've never written a book and I'm going to sit down and write one. Truly, great novels have come out of that effort. But unless you're naturally talented, and some people are, um, you will probably need to write a few books before you are ready, and you'll you'll probably need to take courses and study. Um, and for all cases, including the naturally talented people, one thing that is a non-negotiable, more important than anything, is you must be a voracious reader. If you do not read novels, you cannot write a novel. There's no exceptions to this. I have never met someone who is a great writer who's also not a voracious reader. It, unless we're talking about nonfiction, because a lot of nonfiction books are ghostwritten or even, you know, written by the by the author itself themselves. Um, but it's different because it's about their lives. You know, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about mem memoir here. I'm talking about narrative nonfiction. But for novels, 
you need to be a reader. You must be a reader. What happens? I mean, writers are always trying to interpret rejection letters, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's the usual form letter that says, you know, not for us, good luck. Um, but then there are rejections like agents might say, I love it, but I wouldn't know how to sell it. What does that even mean? Does that mean they just don't have connections? But if they love it, when they find the connections, you know, I mean, it's like, how do you know how to interpret rejections? Or if, if an agent rejects you, rejects your work, and should you assume that they'd be willing to see something else, your next project, or will they say that if they want to see the next project? And, oh, that's will, a question. and will an agent pass, like, will you pass a, a work around to colleagues if it's not for you? Or will you only do that if you love it, but you don't know how to sell it? You know, I mean, there's yeah. like, there's all these really rejections, right? Okay. I feel like I want to tackle the last two first. Um, so if I love something, like love, love, love something, but for whatever reason, it's not for me, I will a hundred percent pass it around. It doesn't happen that often though. Cause usually if I love it, I want to, I want to work on it. Um, it would have to be something, probably something like visceral. Like, I don't know. I don't, I can't imagine what that would be. Um, but I would do it. Um, I have I have signed a client whose book is coming out next year who queried one of my colleagues and she passed it around because she's like, it's, I think she called it too brainy for her. I don't remember what she said, but she said it was too cerebral, like something like that. And I was like, I'll, I'll look at it. And I loved it. So, so that happens. Um, I think it happens less with me sharing because I am so hungry for new clients and I have space and time on my list for more. Um, but you know, this colleague that I'm thinking of, she is someone who's so well established that, you know, it's not that she's not signing new clients cause she is, but she signs fewer clients cause she has a full list. Um, to your other question, you know, if I want, would I say that I want to see their next project? I would not say it explicitly. Um, it never occurred to me to actually say it explicitly. Um, <laughs> but I a hundred percent do. Like if I asked to see your full manuscript and it wasn't for me, and you write another book, please send me that other book. If you still want to work with me, of course. Um, like I saw Promise in your writing once. Like I, I want to read your next book. For a lot of writers, it takes you two to three books before you're finally ready to write that book that's going to sell. And mm -hmm. so, yes, I want you to send me future projects if, if you want to work with me. Um, but I don't say it. Maybe I should. Um, but I think the problem is that we we often don't give personalized feedback. And so that's not included in our form rejection. Um, so yeah, it's, it's you know, unless an agent has said, don't query me again. Like there's no <laughs> reason to assume you shouldn't because they they want new projects. If they're open to queries, like do it. Um, not a lot of writers want to though. Like I know writers who are like, well, this agent rejected me. So I think I'm going to try someone else at that agency. I don't blame them. I wish I wish that weren't the case, of course, but, but that's okay too. You get to pick whoever you want to work with. I forget what your first question was. I think the first one was um, when they say, I I like it, I love it, but I don't know how to sell it. So I don't know what me, I would do with it. Yeah. To me, that means the most common interpretation to that is it's too niche. It's too small. I Agents work on commission. We get paid $0 unless something sells. 
So all the work I do, sometimes I work with clients for years before submitting a book. So those years of labor are unpaid labor. I'm spending money because my time is money. Um, on the chance that something will sell or won't sell, we don't know. And then will it sell for enough money? Will that book earn out? Will we make royalties? Like it's just such a long game. And so sometimes I will come across a book that's really well-written, really well-researched, written by a smart, intelligent person. This is especially true for nonfiction. But I think it's too small. I think it'll sell to a small academic press. This is not me saying anything bad about academic presses. I'm so glad they exist. But typically, they do not pay a lot of money. And so if it sells, I'm guessing, I could be wrong, it'll probably be a small deal with a small advance. And so it's just not worth it for me to get involved. Or it's a subject that's really interesting, but the hook isn't there. Like it's a topic and not a hook. And so I don't know how to position it and I can't, can't figure out a hook. So again, I don't know how to sell it. Um, so it could be that it's too niche, too small. It could be that it's still underdeveloped, meaning you have a topic, but you don't have a hook yet. Um, it could also be that they're just being nice. Like, you know, like they might be, they might not want to hurt your feelings. I don't know. It's, it's such a tricky business because there's a perceived power imbalance in which agents have all the power and writers don't. I understand the perception. I empathize with it. But the reality is that we are all, we agents, we are all working um, a very risky job trying to find gems out there. I think of what people refer to as the slush pile. I think of it as like a diamond mine. Like I'm looking for precious, precious gems. Um, and when we find something, typically there's like five agents who also want it. So like you're in a beauty contest all of a sudden. Um, it's very, it's very competitive, right? So like I understand writers um, feeling frustrated with agents because I feel like a lot of them do. And again, I empathize so much. But truth be told, it's, I have time for way more clients than I have. And yet I have, I struggle to find something I love. Mm -hmm. So will you ask for a, an R and R a revise and resubmit? Um, if you're very, very interested, or if a writer, if you don't say that and a writer revises and should they resubmit? I mean, what should they do? You know, I've been asked this. Well, I, you know, I got an, I got a rejection, but it's been revised. Can I re, you know, requery that agent? I'm like, I don't think so. Only if they ask for, you know, an R and R. But what is your, what, how does it go? What is your opinion on that? Yeah, my opinion is that if you've changed it substantially, go for it. There's no book jail. What are they going to do? They're going <laughs> to be mad at you? Like, like, just go for it. Like, if you really want to work with this person, if you feel like you've made substantial changes, do it. What I will say is you can only make a good first impression once. So if you are sending something out, knowing it's not ready, knowing this, knowing it in your bones, but you're anxious and you want to just hear something back. <laughs> And then when you get rejected and then you change it, like that's not a smart strategy. Don't do that. Um, it, it will be to your detriment. Yeah. Um, but like if you genuinely put your best foot forward and it just took you a while to figure this book out, because sometimes it does happen, do it. Like I'll I'll take a look. Why not? Um, and again, what can I do? Um, there's no book jail. Like my <laughs> my colleague Eric Smith says that all the time. Um, it's his expression and I love it. Have I ever offered RRs? Yes. I have offered, I think, three R&Rs in my life. I am still waiting to hear back from two of them. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's an invitation. It's not a summons. I can't force them to, to resubmit. <laughs> um, 
One of them is a client. I've sold her book. It comes out in 2025. It is a fantastic thriller. It's called Tell Them You Lied. Her name is Laura Leffler. Um, she actually has a substack about being a debut author. It's called This Debut Life. And she shares the story of, of the R&R there. She shares a little bit about what I wrote, how she revised. It's really interesting for um, people who are hoping to break into publishing as authors. Um, and yeah, and because of that R&R, we have this amazing book that's a, that's coming out next year. And it's a great story. And I have a client who is so hardworking and so talented. And I'm so lucky to have her as a client. And it all started because of an R&R. So there you go. How involved do you get with the manuscript? Like, are you very hands-on? Do you enjoy that? I am very hands-on and I love it. It's my favorite part. Um, yeah, it's by far my favorite part. I The thing is, and this is where I struggle, the bulk of the work will always fall on the author. Mm -hmm. And something needs to be very very developed before I can actually add value in a way that won't mess with the story. So I'm very hands-on, very editorially involved. I read my client's manuscript so carefully and so closely. Like I will read every single line with my intense focus. I will think about word choice. I will think about overall structure. Um, I will share the manuscript with other readers so I can get more than one pair of eyes on it. It takes me a while to, to to give feedback, something like three weeks, which is a long time. Um, I'm just like reading that one manuscript every night, every evening, dipping back into it, enjoying it as a reader in a very organic way. Um, and then I'm thinking about it for the longest time so I can be sure to give you very thoughtful notes. And I love it. Like, I love this part of the process. It it does not mean that I'm an editor, though. And, I, and that distinction is very important because my job at the end of the day is to sell. And so if I get something that's so great, has so much promise, it's amazing, but it's it'll need many rounds, then, then I can't help. Um, so I'm happy to do it, want to do it, but I have to be very good with boundaries because my, you know, horrible flaw, my foundational flaw as a human is that I'm like, I tend to do too much as opposed to too little. Like I'm, I'm not good at reining things in. So I, I try to be, you know, disciplined when it comes to that, because that's fair to the author. We have covered so much, so much. I wonder if you have any advice or or words of wisdom for the for the writers listening that we haven't covered. Um, yes. Okay. I, I do have one thing. Um, find your people. Find a community. Writing is a very solitary thing. Querying is it's bananas. Like it is a hair pulling exercise. It's hard. It's hard, everyone. I know that it's hard. Um, find people. It can be virtual people. It can be in-person people. It can be whatever you want. Find people. Find people who are also um, going through what you're going through, maybe in different stages. That's okay. Um, and also make sure that you keep a life, cultivate relationships outside of that. Because it's also important to have friends who do not even know what publishing is really, you know, outside of the TV show Younger, so that you can also have like moments of respite. That's important. Um, but yeah, I think finding a literary community is very important. Um, I will also say read. Like if you're not a voracious reader, I don't know what you're doing, but please be a voracious reader. If you can be a good literary citizen, um, 
I mean, good karma, but also just like smart thing to do. Cause one day you're, you will be in the author's shoes. That's also really important. Um, and you know, I'll plug in my podcast. I think, you know, my podcast super useful because we review query letters every week. Yeah. Um, and you know, I wish I could give feedback to every single query letter I get, but I can't. Um, and so, you know, uh, something that I love about the shit no one tells you about writing is that it allows me to offer feedback to a small sample size of writers who query the podcast. This is different from querying me at the agency. The podcast is the educational resource. Our job is to offer feedback. Like that is the podcast job or the books with hooks part of the podcast anyway. So, so yeah, I also think it's a really cool resource and it's free. So yeah, it's great. And you've been great to give us all this time. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. You're welcome. That was literary agent Cece Lira. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who help make this show possible. I also have a Substack page called Pen on Fire where I talk about writing and include more from authors and agents who've been on the show. And thanks to Travis Barrett who does our music and sound editing. By the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist Just My Type. Travis also has other music there under his name, Travis Barrett. You can access our archive of shows, thousands by now, at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Thank you.